Lesson 3 for October 13 to 19, that they all may be one. Sabbath afternoon, October 13. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, the God of the universe. We thank you that Jesus came, that each of us could have eternal life. We also thank you that he's coming back again, and that we can look forward to that. And as we open your word this week, we pray that we may find how we as a church, as a family, as individuals, may achieve unity in a way that will let your gospel be shared with those around us, but also that we may be able to show what Jesus is really like and that your grace is real. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's read that again, John 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The Gospel of John provides us with a window into Jesus' immediate concerns as his betrayal and death loomed on the horizon. In five crucial chapters, John chapter 13 through to John chapter 17, we receive Jesus' last words of instruction, culminating with what has sometimes been called his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. F. F. Bruce, in his book The Gospel of John, page 328, writes, It is a fitting designation, for our Lord in this prayer consecrates himself for the sacrifice in which he is simultaneously both priest and victim. At the same time, it is a prayer of consecration on behalf of those for whom the sacrifice is offered. The disciples who were present in the upper room and those who would subsequently come to faith through their testimony. End of quote. At the core of this prayer is Jesus' concern for unity among his disciples and those who would later believe in him. This was a key theme in his prayer. In John 17 verses 9 and 10, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. No meaningful discussion of church unity, of our oneness in Christ, can be complete without careful attention given to this prayer. What did Jesus pray for? Whom did he pray for? And what does his prayer mean for us today? Sunday, October 14. Jesus prays for himself. 
The high priestly prayer is divided into three parts. First, Jesus prays for himself, John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, then for his disciples, verses 6 through to 19, and finally for those who would later believe in him, verses 20 to 26. Question. Read John chapter 17, verses 1 through to 5. What is the essence of his prayer? And what does it mean for us? John 17, beginning at verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus intercedes first for himself. In preceding events in the Gospel of John, Jesus had indicated that his hour had not yet come. John 2 Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And in John 7, verse 30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And John 8, verse 20, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. But now he knows the hour of his sacrifice is here. The moment for the dramatic conclusion of his earthly life has arrived, and he is in need of strength to complete his mission. It is a time for prayer. Jesus will glorify his Father by doing his will, even if it means he must endure the cross. His acceptance of the cross is not some kind of fatalism. Rather, it is, in fact, how he exercises the authority the Father has given him. He did not die a martyr's death, but willingly glorified his Father by fulfilling the reason for his incarnation, his sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of the world. Question. What is eternal life, according to John 17, verse 3? What does it mean to know God? John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. First and foremost, Jesus tells us eternal life consists in our personal knowledge of God. This is not salvation by works or by knowledge, but rather it is the experience of knowing the Lord because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. This knowledge is mediated through a personal relationship with the Father. Our human tendency is to limit knowledge to facts and details, but here Jesus aims at something deeper and more fulfilling, a personal relationship with God. Jesus' first advent also was for the purpose of guiding humanity in its search for a more meaningful and saving knowledge of God, and the unity with each other that such knowledge will lead to. So, to finish today, what is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally?
What experiences have you had that have helped you come to know God? October 15. Jesus prays for his disciples. Question. Read John chapter 17, verses 9 through to 19. What is Jesus praying specifically about in regard to his disciples? John 17, beginning at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus prays next for his disciples, who are in grave danger of losing their faith in him in the days ahead, when he, Jesus, will no longer be with them in the flesh. Thus he commits them to the care of his Father. The prayer of Jesus is for their protection in the world. As such, Jesus does not pray for the world because he knows it intrinsically is opposed to the will of the Father. As we read in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But because the world is the place where the disciples will do their service, Jesus prays that they may be preserved from the evil in the world. Jesus is concerned for the world. Indeed, he is the saviour of it. But the spread of the gospel is tied to the witness of those who will go and preach the good news. That is why Jesus needs to intercede for them, that the evil one will not defeat them. Matthew 6.13, he says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever." Amen. One disciple, however, has been defeated. Earlier that evening, Jesus had mentioned that one of them had decided to betray him, and we read about that in John 13, verses 18 to 30. Well, why don't we go and have a look there? I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And, having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Even though Jesus refers to the fact that Scripture had predicted Jesus' betrayal, as in Psalm 41 verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me, Judas was not the victim of fate. During the Last Supper, Jesus appealed to him in a gesture of love and friendship. In John 13, verses 26 to 30, which we have just read. At the Passover, Ellen White writes, in Desire of Ages, page 720, Jesus proved his divinity by revealing the traitor's purpose. He tenderly included Judas in the ministry to his disciples, but the last appeal of love was unheeded. Knowing that envy and jealousies could divide the disciples as it had done on occasion before, Jesus prays for their unity in John 17.13. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Such unity is beyond human accomplishment. It can be the result and gift of divine grace only. Their unity is grounded in the unity of the Father and Son, and this unity is an indispensable prerequisite for effective service in the future. Their sanctification or consecration in the truth also is indispensable for service. The work of God's grace on the disciples' hearts will transform them. But if they are to witness to God's truth, they themselves must be transformed by that truth. And so to finish today, what does it mean to be not of the world? What is it about us, our lives and how we live that make us not of this world? Tuesday, October 16, for those who will believe in me. 
After Jesus prayed for his disciples, he broadened his prayer to include those who will believe in me through their word, John 17, verse 20. Question, read John, chapter 17, verses 20 through to 26. What was Jesus' greatest wish for those who would later believe in the gospel message? Why is it so important that this prayer be fulfilled? John 17, beginning at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. As the Father and Son are one, Jesus prayed that future believers also would be one. In a few places in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to the unity of the Father and the Son. They never act independently of each other, but are always united in everything. They do... Together, John 5, verses 20 to 23, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. They share a common love for fallen humanity to the extent that the Father was willing to give his Son for the world, and the Son was willing to give his life for it too. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John 10 verse 15 As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The unity Jesus refers to in this prayer is a unity of love and purpose as it is between Father and Son. John 13.35 By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Manifesting this unity in love will give public confirmation both of their relationship with Jesus and with the Father. Andreas J. Kostenberger in his book John, page 498, writes, The display of their genuine unity ought to provide a compelling witness to the truth of the gospel. End of quote. This is how the world will know that Jesus is the Saviour. In other words, this unity Jesus prayed for cannot be invisible. How can the world be convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel if it cannot see love and unity among 
God's people. Ellen White writes in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 17, God is leading out a people to stand in perfect unity upon the platform of eternal truth. God designs that His people should all come into the unity of the faith. The prayer of Christ just prior to His crucifixion was that His disciples might be one, even as He was one with the Father, that the world might believe that the Father had sent Him. This most touching and wonderful prayer reaches down the ages, even to our day, for His words were, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. How earnestly should the professed followers of Christ seek to answer this prayer in their lives? End of quote. And so to finish today, what are we doing in our lives and churches to help reach the kind of unity presented here? Why is a certain amount of death to self crucial for each of us if we want our church to be united as it should be. Wednesday, October 17. Unity Among Christians. Question. Read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, and John 10:16. What does Jesus' response to the Apostle John teach us about exclusivism and quick judgments about who is a true believer of Jesus? First of all, Mark 9, beginning at verse 38. Now, John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward." And John 10 and verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Seventh-day Adventists have tended to understand Jesus' prayer in John 17 as directly applying to the unity of their church denomination. We must be united as a church to fulfill our mission to share the three angels' messages to the world. On this point, there is no contention. But what about unity with other Christians? How are we to relate to them in light of what Jesus prayed? No question, we believe that God has faithful people in other churches beside our own. Besides, the Bible makes it clear that God has his faithful ones even in Babylon. Revelation 18 verse 4 reads, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. 
At that time, we know that according to the book of Revelation, there is great apostasy among those who profess the name of Christ, and that in the last days, many false Christians will reunite with each other and with the state in order to bring about the persecution graphically depicted in Revelation 13 verse 17. Hence, Adventists always have been very careful about getting involved in calls for unity with other churches, such as seen in the ecumenical movement. How, then, should we relate to other denominations? Ellen White wrote the following in regard to the Seventh-day Adventist Church working together with other Christians, at least on this specific issue. She wrote in Welfare Ministry, page 163, As the human heart submits his will to the will of God, the Holy Spirit will make the impression upon the hearts of those to whom he ministers. I have been shown that we are not to shun the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union workers. By uniting with them in behalf of total abstinence, we do not change our position regarding the observance of the seventh day, and we can show our appreciation of their position regarding the subject of temperance. By opening the door and inviting them to unite with us on the temperance question, we secure their help along temperance lines, and they, by uniting with us, will hear new truths which the Holy Spirit is waiting to impress upon hearts. End of quote. Though she was dealing with a specific issue at a specific time, She does give principles that we can follow regarding how we relate to other Christians, especially on the question of uniting around a cause. First, we can work with them on common social interests. Second, if we do unite with them, we must do so in a way that will not compromise our beliefs or practices. Third, we can and should use this unity to share with others the precious truths with which We have been blessed. Thursday, October 18. One faith shared in love. Question. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said that eternal life is to know God. Read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through to 6. What does it mean to know God? How can we demonstrate our knowledge of God in our daily lives? John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And first John chapter two, beginning at verse three. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Generally, while people in society today wish to call themselves law-abiding citizens, 
These same people often will downplay the biblical obligation to keep the commandments of God. Some even argue that God's grace does away with God's commandments. But that is not the biblical teaching. Keeping the commandments, Eckhart Mueller writes in the Letters of John, page 39, is not a condition for knowing God, but a sign that we know God or Jesus and love Him. Therefore, knowledge of God is not just theoretical knowledge, but leads to action. Jesus himself emphasized, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, we read in John 14, verses 15 and 21. And in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. Question. Read John 13, verses 34 and 35. What new commandment did Jesus give His disciples? And how does this relate to the idea of unity among Jesus' followers? John 13, beginning at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The command to love one's neighbour was not new in itself. It can be found in the instructions God gave Moses in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. What is new is Jesus' command for his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. Jesus' example of self-sacrificial love is the new ethic for the Christian community. What a wonderful standard has been set before us. Jesus' life has been a practical demonstration of love in action. The whole work of grace is one continual service of love, of self-denying, self-sacrificing effort. We can imagine that Christ's life was an unceasing manifestation of love and self-sacrifice for the good of others. The principle that actuated Christ should actuate his people in all their dealing with one another. What a powerful witness such love would be to the world, and what a powerful force for unity among us such love would provide as well. And so to finish the day, how can we learn to reveal the kind of self-sacrificing love for others that Jesus revealed? Friday, October 19. Angel Rodriguez writes in The Message, Mission and Unity of the Church, published by the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in 2013, and we're reading from page 37. Although the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a worldwide church with many local churches, Adventists do not claim to be Christ's universal church. 
the universal church is broader than any denomination. It is visible and invisible insofar as it consists of those who believe in Jesus and follow him. This particular theological issue is heightened if we take into consideration apostasy among Christians, addressed poignantly in the book of Revelation. The pure church of Revelation 12 is contrasted with the harlot of Revelation 17, Babylon, the great city, which in turn is contrasted with the bride of the Lamb, the holy city, or the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22. In the first century, the universal church may have been quite visible. It is much more difficult and complex to see it, for instance, during the medieval ages. Therefore, Adventists do not limit the concept of God's true church to their own denomination, nor do they automatically extend it to other Christian churches. God's true church consists of those individuals who truly believe in Him. God knows them. Adventists, on the other hand, claim that they are God's special, visible, end-time remnant of Revelation 12.17 and chapters 12-14. through to 14. This remnant has a local as well as a universal character. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week, and basically there are two. One, has your local church worked with other Christians on certain issues? How can we work with them, when appropriate, without compromising truth? 2. What are the implications of the statement below found in the Great Controversy? How can we make this real among us? And the statement is from page 379 of the Great Controversy. If God's professed people would receive the light as it shines upon them from His Word they would reach that unity for which Christ prayed, that which the Apostle describes, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is, he says, one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 5. And to summarise this week's lesson. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is a reminder that Jesus still is concerned about church unity today. His prayer should be our prayer, and we should seek ways to solidify our faith in God's Word. Love for one another also should characterize our relationships to everyone, including other Christians, whatever their theological differences may be. Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled God Fills a Hole and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. There's a photograph of the subject of our story today, Pastor Frank Kentrell, who is a friend of mine. Let's read the story. Frank Cantrell, a retired Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Australia, was shocked when doctors diagnosed him with skin cancer. But an even bigger surprise came two weeks later when a gaping hole in his head healed in what stunned doctors called a miracle. Frank was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma, a kind of skin cancer on his head in 2014. 
It was a shock to be told that if the new drugs didn't work, I would not have too many chances, said Frank, 72. A pastor anointed him and people began to pray for him. Frank underwent a series of operations, radiation treatments and immunotherapies with his wife Marlene at his side. Complications arose after an operation where doctors removed a large melanoma from the back of Frank's head, leaving part of his skull exposed. Nurses dressed the wound, waiting for the skin to grow back over the skull, and later his wife took over. The wound healed well at first, but then the skin just stopped growing. One day, the colour of the exposed skull changed from white to yellow. A plastic surgeon gave Frank the disturbing diagnosis that his skull had died. The surgeon called in a leading plastic surgeon for consultations, and the two decided to perform a major surgery with the assistance of a neurosurgeon. The complex operation would take eight to ten hours and require the doctors to replace Frank's skull with an artificial one. The news was a shock to us, Marlene said in an email to friends. A few days later, as Marlene was changing the dressing on Frank's head, a chunk of discoloured skull came off with the dressing and rested in her hand. I nearly collapsed with shock, Marlene said. Underneath the chunk of skull that had come off, she could see that Frank's flesh had been growing across the skull and had covered the gaping hole. Over the next two days, Frank visited three medical specialists to find out what was happening. He learned that the human skull has three layers, and his flesh had been growing underneath the first layer, eventually forcing the top layer of the skull to pop off. The medical specialists declared it a miracle. They said, Who is looking after you? Marlene said. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.